This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the special bonus episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portio. Recently, thanks to the kind folks over at horror streaming service Shudder, I got the chance to chat to some filmmakers with new projects on the platform. The first was the great ride director Larry Fezenden, who has made such interesting, thought-provoking horrors as The Last Winter and Wendigo. He's a filmmaker who draws from popular fantastical myths and stories and transplants them into realistic modern-day settings, and through that, gives them a fresh spin and uses them to explore contemporary concerns and his latest film depraved is a retelling of frankenstein but set in new york now and it's certainly his most ambitious work to date and possibly his best and in our chat he talks about it and his method of movie making and on top of being a writer director he's produced a lot of movies including works by kelly reichard ty west and jim mickle where he is a kind of mentor to them he has also an impressive career as a character actor too, working with directors like Jim Jarmusch, Martin Scorsese and Neil Jordan, which he also talks to me about. Then, for the second half of the show, I chatted with director Justin G. Dyke and writer Keith Cooper about their film Anything for Jackson, one of the best-reviewed horrors of the year. It's a movie that breeds new life into the types of demonic horrors I love, like Rosemary's Baby. It's very creepy, but it also has this nice strain of jet-black comedy running through it. All the more interesting is that Justin and Keith's background is mostly working on TV Christmas movies, so we talk about anything for Jackson and what caused them to shift gears so rapidly. So, I hope you enjoy those chats. First up is Larry Fezenden on Depraved. I figured it out. I figured out how to bring them back. And so it begins. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast by indie horror legend Larry Fezenden. Congratulations on your latest film, Depraved, which is now streaming in Ireland on Shudder. Having been a fan of your work since I saw and loved The Last Winter, uh, Depraved feels like what your work has been building towards, because I think your movies have always taken elements of classic horror and have placed them in modern environments and uses them to explore contemporary concerns. So uh, a Frankenstein set in New York about the Iraq war and Big Pharma feels like something you must have wanted to make for some time. Am I right in that? Well, in fact, you're absolutely right. And if you listen to those themes, even though they're still relevant, uh, they very much came out of the 2000s. So I had written the script. um, Well, I guess I made last winter in 2006. So maybe 2010, I had this story to tell. And um, it's very much about when we were in Iraq. But in a way, I've wanted to always make Frankenstein again. Um, I really love visiting the great horror tropes and and seeing them with a fresh eye and personalizing them and showing uh, how vital these stories still are. You know, Frankenstein, uh, Dracula, the Wolfman, Creature from the Black Lagoon, they all are great iconic stories about man and civilization, and I like to explore that. And so you're saying a lot of these themes came from the 2000s. I was curious, what took it so long to come to the screen? Well, in fact, I was um, making... uh, in my mind, an elevated horror, which is a term they throw around in Hollywood, um, and which is to say that I wanted to cast with familiar uh, indie actors to sort of give it a cachet. And so I spent many years looking for such an actor to join the troupe, and then that would uh, bring more financing and make a slightly bigger film. But uh, I found over time that I wasn't well enough connected or people were 
afraid to make a horror film, um, you know. And so eventually I made the movie uh, with a much smaller budget and with less prominent actors, but of course with that you get committed actors and, and you have a more intimate experience. So I, I kind of had to learn my own lesson whenever I talk to young filmmakers. I say, just go do it. Don't wait around for the suits to give you the money. So it was um, just... Uh, I had just enough encouragement that I kept trying, but that can get you down a long road of waiting. Yeah, and I think the movie looks very striking, and I know you said that it was made on a low budget, but uh, to be honest, watching it felt more like an aesthetic, you know, the switching to home video, and I think it's GoPro footage, and like the psychedelic montages, and the flickering yeah. lights to represent, uh, I think, like the synapses of Adam's brain firing. Like, it feels very dynamic. And I was just wondering, for any aspiring filmmakers listening, do you have any tips for making a film that looks polished despite limited resources? Well, just find talented and dedicated collaborators. Uh, we had, uh, we shot on the red, which of course is a great camera, and you know, it's good enough for Fincher. It's good enough for me. So. Uh, <laughs> We had a beautiful camera package and some talented uh, people lighting the movie. I put a lot of emphasis on the art department and, you know, make sure that what's in the frame looks fantastic. I had a great makeup department, Brian Spears and Peter Gerner. Um, and then from there, well, I can shoot on an iPhone and still it's the design of the movie that matters and the, the way one shot leads to another. So you're always aspiring aesthetically to do to make cinema. And then beyond that, we had this idea. Uh, I wanted to sort of portray that the brain is a physical thing that is actually creating our experience. So then I love that you said synapses. That's just what it was, the idea of animations. And me and my animator, we would uh, argue about he didn't like overlaying. He thought you should go into the animated world because in a way he is an animator. But I insisted you see both things at once. And that's my point is that in life you you know, you're going along, we're having a conversation, but there's another reality, which is that uh, my brain is physically triggering. So I want to sort of enforce that on the audience. All these things, these are things you can do without money. You have to just have the dedication and the conviction. Yeah, and I, I imagine shooting in vibrant environments like New York helps, and as someone born and raised there, what is it about the city that really pops on screen? Because so much, I'll watch a movie just because it's set in New York. Oh, fantastic. I love that. Well, of course, you could watch a movie in London or Dublin or, you know, uh, any any city has its personality. But New York has a certain amount of grit. Of course, a lot of that has been lost to uh, gentrification on, in every borough, which is one reason I found myself in Gowanus. It still uh, feels sort of toxic. <laughs> um, but I, I love the city. I mean, it's a very fundamental thing, and, you know, it goes all the way to Taxi Driver, is the color of the uh, streetlights, the red, uh, yellow, and uh, green of, of just the uh, stoplights. And then there's lots of fantastic buildings, and in my case, I wanted a warehouse. So it's the architecture, and there's a certain, um, well, there's great diversity in the people uh, of all classes and, and uh, ethnicities, and so you can find faces, and and they're all somewhat indifferent to filmmakers. So you can capture things on the street uh, without a bunch of hubaloos, and and then you know even the cops are, are cooperative. So it's it's just a vital city. Of course, I love making movies in nature too. So that's another the the, the environment is essential to my work. 
And I, I think people who check out Depraved and are unfamiliar with your work might be surprised by how emotional and character-driven it is. And there's a large part where there's not really any horror and we're following you know, the PTSD suffering Dr. Henry, uh, taking care of his creation, Adam, and helping him develop. And the gradual bond that develops between those two who are both traumatized in different ways is really affecting. And can you discuss that? Because it feels like a subversion of the Mary Shelley novel because they're not villains, really. Well, I really appreciate your analysis, and it means so much as a filmmaker to hear uh, one's intentions parroted back. And and I've come to realize that I don't make horror films. They're not scary, and they're they're not gory in general. But, of course, on the other hand, I'm making movies about the horror of life, the alienation that we all feel, uh, the the encroaching death or the engagement with death. You're either going to come to an end sooner or later. Um, and in the case of the monster, it may be reversed, which is its own trauma. So I'm interested in the little shocks in life, which is something that we all share. We don't all get murdered by a slasher, but we all feel the sadness when we are dissed by our partner or, you know, our parent uh, and love is taken from us. And so I'm trying to refocus the viewer into the little shocks. And the idea is to say that we all share this commonality and it doesn't have to be really loud and um, extremely violent to feel the violence and so that's sort of my and and I want to sort of reawaken these preposterous stories you know life after death and and show how they do actually exist in in our lives or how they might uh, exist like a, a field surgeon who comes back from Iraq he's going to have seen things that are as awful as anything and and last thought is just to name it depraved just to raise expectations there's many people who will rent it and they're going to hope for somebody who's cutting women up in the basement and in a way i'm saying society has become depraved you know we we and i think that's true in our in our country uh, the political situation is depraved people are uh, lying and creating false truths in order to justify their uh, avarice and you know these are urgent desperate matters that will lead to the end of civilization so uh, it is depraved the way we're behaving yeah i do think that the strength of your movies is that extra time that you devote to character and human interactions uh, so that when the more outwardly horror elements do come like the viewer is more emotionally invested in the stakes and you're an actor on top of being you know, an editor, a writer, a director, and a producer. And because you've been on the other side of the camera, do you think that's why you give that added focus to your characters? Because I find a lot of horror that's especially more mainstream doesn't. Well, I honestly think a lot of horror is uh, has developed over the last 20, 30 years from something as stark and wonderful as Halloween to uh, movies like Hereditary or Babadook, where they are, in fact, engaging with um, emotion and with an understanding of how that leads to thematic, you know, mm-hmm. horror visuals. So uh, I'm not alone anymore, but when I started out, my agenda was to really tell personal stories and engage the audience and then have the fun of these mythologies you know oh it's a vampire uh what would that be like i always ask that when i sit down i'm gonna write the creature from the black lagoon well what would it really be like you know and then you start realizing oh it is such a it's such a great story uh you know it's about 
man and nature and masculinity and all kinds of other things. And so you get to uh, truths that are beyond just the uh, the loud, scary music. And that's just my approach. We all enjoy um, the more overt horror stories, and those are a great pleasure. But I guess my mission is to do something else. Mm. I think you always attract such a good cast. Uh, I, I think it's probably down to that emphasis that you place on character and uh, can you talk a bit about the cast in here because I, I think Joshua Leonard from people may know from the Blair Witch Project and Maria Dizia who's a real indie darling uh, are a lot of fun and I'm also a big fan of uh, your young star Chloe Levine who people may know from the OA and the Transfiguration which you were in and playing Adam's girlfriend in his old life she's someone the viewer really wants him to be reunited with uh, can you talk about how they got involved well there again it's so essential that every uh Every bit part has uh, this vitality that haunts the audience because you're trying to, in two hours, uh, give the audience the, the memories of a lifetime, you know. And so I, I knew I had one scene with Chloe and Owen, Owen Campbell, who's also a great actor I've worked with since he was a kid. I had to make an imprint on the audience. So we took a whole day to shoot that, whereas the rest of the movie we had to fly through. But, you know... Um, it was a different location as well, but really just wanted to sink in so the audience would have that to feel sad about and yearn about, which was, of course, the main emotion, more than horror that I'm always after. So that was an essential role, and that relationship had to ring true so that you felt the sadness of the loss. And then, speaking of loss, there's also Shelley, who is uh, Addison Timlin, is a wonderful actress I'd worked with before, and I knew just one scene with her would also imprint on the audience. And that's The Bride of Frankenstein. And it's the uh, little girl at the, at, the, uh, at the lake who throws the petals in. It's sort of both of those things, the, the innocence and the, and the romantic desire in the monster who's ultimately going to remain alone. So, so important. But also I wanted just a contemporary great scene. That scene is way too long it's twice as long as it should be you're just trying to say he meets a girl in the bar and then the, but i feel like with her performance you actually understand her whole, whole life she works in a corporate environment she needs to get drunk at night just to go to sleep she's a restless punk kind of a girl uh and yet she's alone and lonely and lonely enough to go out with this obviously sketchy dude so <laughs> Um, I just like a movie that veers you into another world and, and the whole sort of reality. And of course, I, I'm not mentioning my, my stars. They were all so wonderful. And, and all the women suffer in this movie. It's a, a tragedy of society, in my opinion. They're all they're supportive, nurturing, sometimes scolding in the case of Maria Dizia. And yet the men are just off the hook out of control they're depraved <laughs> <laughs> you're right about that scene with um, Addison Timlin it's, it's incredible and it's the turning point of the movie um, in a Frankenstein movie it's always important who you cast as the monster and um, Alex Bro or Brooks uh, yeah. he, he's not somebody I was aware of and I think he's really excellent and I think the, the real horror of the movie is the way he plays the creature unable to express himself haunted by fragments of his past self um can you talk about what you were looking for in that performance and what you and alex talked about when you were developing the character with him well i i described the process of making this movie was trying to get um well-known 
uh, actors in the main roles to uh, elevate the profile of the film and get the money. Uh, but what I did have confidence in is that uh, the monster could be an unknown. So I decided to audition people, um, really just to stay busy because it was so uh, disheartening to wait for oh, two weeks to be told no, and then you go to the next guy. So I, uh, I had auditions, and I'd read a newspaper about him. He'd been in a local play, and in the newspaper he was in uh, uh, shorts, and so I saw his physique, and I saw his height, and he had that strange face and in this play that he he was quite menacing um and so i became intrigued and i said to my casting guys can i see him anyway i loved his performance and his physique and his face and he was such an intelligent guy he uh, had been in uh oh i don't know harvard and some other joint as well and uh had become an actor at the last moment so in his mind he was late to the game um and we just started up a rapport, and for like a year, maybe a year and a half, he stuck with the project, and I would give him Frankenstein stories, and uh, and I just told him how the, how I wanted him to walk and the physicality. I gave him books about uh, having a stroke and what it all feels like, and, and he was just a very thoughtful person, and he went through it all for me, so he was my longest collaboration. One thing that was fun is that there was an, in the end of the movie, he... Uh, well, you know, bad things happen. But he wanted to reach a place of anger. And uh, and I said, this is a, a different story I'm telling. It's not about the monster exploding. It's about him becoming resigned uh, to the world and to humanity and to his alienation. So it's so fun when you're working with an actor and you realize, oh, I actually want something different on the screen and how you talk about that and find a slightly different thing in order to tell the story the way you want. And that's just something I cherish, that particular conversation. And Josh Leonard also um, was really fun because he directs and he's been around the block. He sort of brought his own energy to the set. and He's like, let's do it three times in a row uh, without stopping and just see what happens. And, and of course, I'm always game you know, what's interesting about directing actors is that every actor has a different process and it's really a director has to make sure that everybody feels they're being heard, their process is respected. And so anyway, it's a great dance and it's a great privilege when you have good camera guys standing by ready to capture it and you're in the sandbox with the actors. So it's fun. Yeah, and I imagine that adds to the excitement and the spontaneity. Absolutely. And my favorite comment, maybe not on this movie, but on... Uh, an old, earlier film I made called Habitus, people said, oh, was that all improv? And I'm like, no, it's every word is scripted, but the fact that you think that is fantastic. <laughs> and just not because my writing is so bad, they're like, <laughs> <laughs> but never. <laughs> I'm sure that's not that. Um, yeah, talking more generally about your work, you know, like Habit and Wendigo and The Last Winter, uh, I think it's rare filmmakers work almost solely in one genre as you've done in horror, and um just more broadly, like what, what is it about the genre that you like as a storyteller? Honestly, I just think it's how I see the world through a sense of sadness and um, sensitivity to life's shocks and uh, the fragility of life. And it's why I become aggravated by our, um, well, by our society. And that's what the last winter is. I mean, it's I'm just trying to say we need to be a little smarter about how we go about things. You, there's such hubris and arrogance in the human uh, 
animal, and I, I just want to uh, challenge that. And, and so it's, it's really a response to life. I sit at the page, and I see a blank page, and I see horror. <laughs> so that's where I end up. Also, I really love... At the same time, imagine if I wanted to put all those themes into a drama. It would be the most maudlin, dreadful, uh, self-pitying, uh, awful affair. Uh, what I love about horror is that it's also such a fantastic aesthetic um, world. You have monsters and ghouls, and they represent so many things. Otherness, outsiderness, uh, true depravity. I mean, and it's one thing I have to say about the the conversation on the left is I don't think everybody should be represented in movies per se. I, I, I love that monsters for for generations have provided the metaphor of what it's like to be different and outside and feel alienated. And I, I'll never give that up. Yeah, so that, that excites me. And I also just like a creaky tree and a, and a full moon. So it's really the aesthetics as well as the themes and the sense of creativity, you know, you can also use the camera in a different way in a horror movie because you're trying to show uh, the experience of life when it's off kilter and not going well. Uh, and in there, there's a sense of um, true uh, dementia and, and surrealism. All those cinematic techniques become available to you as well as the sound palette can just be so exciting. So, you know, my friends always say, why don't you make comedy? You're such a goofy guy. And uh, I'm like, oh, well, I would just, it would somehow get very dark very quickly. But I love like Jacques Tati, if you're aware of him, you know, uh, a sense of absurdity of life. Right. And it's fun to put a scene like that in a horror movie. I don't know if I've done it, but I certainly think that way. <laughs> and through Glass Eye Picks, your independent film studio, you've mentored and helped out directors who've gone on to great things like Kelly Reichardt and Jim Mickle and Ty West. And I was curious, what do you look for when deciding this is a product project I want to produce or this is a filmmaker I want to help out? Um, I think it's the same thing that I've been talking about. It's a sense of authenticity and a singular voice that each director is bringing to the, uh, to the party. Uh, Kelly, of course, does not make genre films in any way, although she's, you know, flirts with sort of westerns in in her way. Um, but but there you have somebody who's really uh, a keen observer of life, knows that where you place the camera tells a different story from the plot that you're watching. You know, it might be way back here with with the Michelle Williams when the men are deciding where to go. Well, most filmmakers would be with the men because that's the driving force of the plot are they going to cross the river or not but she'll put the camera with michelle williams and you realize that's how the women experience these monumental decisions that affect their lives from from a distance not really being part of it so you see there's an example of a camera choice that is that's cinema you're having a very specific experience so a filmmaker that understands those kind of things ty west has a great sense of pacing and detail which is why, you know, we always joke he's called the slow burn filmmaker. And it's really because his movies are achingly boring. But if you lean in, you start to feel a sense of, of life and detail and vitality that makes uh, any kind of horror element more shocking. And then Mikkel, I just love him. He's very pulpy. Um, 
also brings great humanity to his films. And, and I would continue to name my other collaborators. And it's all that uh, they're all care about cinema and how you tell stories and, and, uh, and they have a unique vision, Graham Resnick, who I've worked with on many kinds of things and, uh, and many others, even uh, Jen Wexler is, is really pulpy, but she's so, uh, she made a movie called the Ranger and she also produced a lot of movies for us. But, um, that movie is, you know, decidedly punk and, and brightly colored, really dynamic. And, uh, so you just, there, I love the, the range of storytellers that I've worked with. And you've also acted in movies by everyone from, you know, Martin Scorsese and Jim Jarmusch to maybe more underappreciated directors like Brad Anderson, who I love, and uh, major yeah. indie figures like Joe Swanberg, and you've even worked with Ireland's own Neil Jordan. Uh, being on sets with these people, has there been anything you've learned or any advice you've received that you've used making your own films? Well, I have. I love Neil Jordan because we had an all-night shoot, and it was in a deli. I come in and I shoot uh, the woman who runs the deli, and then uh, Jodie Foster shoots me. But uh, at the end of the shoot, which was a long day, it was four in the morning, and uh, <laughs> he just reached into the cooler and pulled out uh, a jug of uh, beer. And I just thought, good on you, mate. Um, <laughs> but um, he was really fun to work with. And I only bring him up because it was a longer day, more to do from my point of view. You learn from every director. And, and one thing I love is uh, we, I did this Jarmish film recently, and I was so amused when he just talked to his DP uh, and and said, where, where do you want to put the camera? Which is different from how I work. So I was interested in both their collaborative ability and also Jim's ability to, to bring in and empower his DP, whereas I'm very bossy. Um, and then, of course, working with Scorsese, I don't really think, it, you know, I was in the scene for 20 seconds, but but I was on the set for a day, so that's the beauty. And I got to see him work, and he interacted with me, and he was just a very generous. Anyway, he's one of my favorites because I love the way his mind works. And you could tell he's editing in his mind, creating these incredibly uh, dynamic shots one after another. Bob Richardson was the DP. So um, every one of those experiences is very thrilling and honestly very scary because you want to bring your A game. You're working with... Uh, movie stars that you've seen on on the big screen. I had Kylo Ren <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Bill Murray, and uh, but you know the thing about filmmaking is when you get on set, you're just a fellow collaborator. And Bill Murray said, because I'd been in, in a movie with him before, he said, "Oh, it's fascinating. This is going to be fun." And that's just the most generous thing he could say. Of course, he hasn't thought about me since we made the other movie but he managed to create a welcoming environment and then you're all just foot soldiers you know it's another thing that's not true is the idea that actors are elitist you know once you're on set you're all equal and uh, i mean there's always some ego to deal with that's just true in any industry but uh, but making movies is a very working man's uh, business when you're actually on set everybody's trying to make a product and is there anything you're producing or writing and directing that you're excited about coming down the pipeline and I was just curious has COVID-19 had a big impact on your work I mean COVID is more just 
psychologically uh, oppressive. And once again, it's just depressing to me to see all the themes of my movies of uh, hubris and lack of cooperation just coming true and, and living in a horror movie. You know, anybody who loves horror knows this is a zombie film we're in. This is a contagion. This is the Planet of the Apes. If you remember the, the remake, that pilot has the disease that'll kill humanity and he gets on the plane. It's actually in the credit sequence of the, uh, the recent one. Anyway, all I'm saying is this is what we've been talking about. <laughs> this is what horror movies are talking about. And it's disappointing to see that nobody can um, get along. And the sheer tragedy of, uh, of people being swept up and the incompetence of our leaders. So that's all sad. And, but uh, I myself am a loner, so I'm being very creative. I have fun. I, uh, I work on my projects and uh you know i i run my company so we have an internet and we feel like we're talking to fans and i did a festival in october and i have a, a movie i'm trying to produce and i'm writing my next film and i'm trying to finish my son's movie so honestly i get up uh in the morning i don't wear pants but uh, i do a lot of um the same work sounds like you're keeping busy anyway so good luck with all that in the future thanks so much for being so generous with your time and speaking to me i really love depraved oh thanks man it means a great deal i appreciate it as you heard in the intro this show is part of the headstuff podcast network ireland's largest network of independent podcasts there's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network here's a taster of one hello joe rooney here back in 2015 i recorded my first pot of rooney and since then i've been chatting to people that i meet throughout my travels here and there all over the world including sean Locke, mary Coughlin, frank kelly joanne McAnally, owen colgan shazia Mertza, aiden gillen and culture reardon but loads of people you'd never heard of who have very interesting tales to tell including the sadly no longer with us Boston-based comedian Barry Crimmins, who led a crusade against images of child abuse on the internet, Tracy Carroll, whose daughter Willow has the highest grade of cerebral palsy, Drada Homeless Aid, Christine Volset, a Norwegian singer-documentary maker who ended up hanging out with the young lads in inner city Dublin and riding bareback on a horse through the city streets. All these very interesting tales to tell, and all you have to do is skip the first six minutes of me talking rubbish. That's and now, my conversation with director Justin G. Dyke and writer Keith Cooper about anything for Jackson. Hello, my name is Audrey, and this is my husband Henry. We don't want to hurt you or your baby. We feel this would be the best way for you to go missing. So congratulations on Anything for Jackson. Uh, I was just curious, what have you made of the reaction to it? Because it's currently sitting on a near-perfect critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. It's been unanimously praised. and I can imagine that you two are always very confident in the movie, but it's not every day a horror is universally loved like that, and it can be such a divisive genre. So I imagine you two are very happy. Uh, definitely, yeah. We're <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled. Uh, you're right, we... Uh... You know, I, I've been excited about the movie since day one. Uh, even after we had it all all finished and delivered, I was very excited about it, which, you know, you never know how you're going to feel when you're so close to a project. Mm. But then, yeah, we had a bit of a slow rollout with the uh, virtual film festivals. And, uh, you know, we got some nice press. But, uh, 
you know, it's, uh, you never we, know yeah, we, we had no <laughs> idea. So, um, and you're right. I, you know, I keep a close eye on, on horror films and how they're, how they're received. And some of my favorite films have, you know, really poor ratings. So you just, you never know. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled myself. Yeah, I was the same. It was, uh, you know, I, I kind of go into it on defense mode. So I'm like, well, they hated John Hughes movies, so don't worry. You know what I mean? And then I was like, so the critics suck and everything sucks. And then I see a good review. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm like, wow, this is fantastic. I'm so happy. Yeah, wow, what a lovely bunch of critics. No, you know, it's just, it is nice. It's it's surprising for sure, right? You don't you don't think anyone, you know, everyone's going to like your movie. And certainly there are people who don't, but... Uh, um, yeah, it's been it's been really great, really well received, and I, I couldn't be happier. And for those listening who may not know, uh, can you describe what anything for Jackson is about? Sure. Yeah, uh, it's about this old couple, Henry and Audrey, who uh, are really just doing everything that they can um, to bring back their dead grandson. Um, you know, who died in a car accident, and so they kidnap a very pregnant woman, and the intention is to put the spirit of their grandson uh, inside this new child and like old entitled people they're just going to take the baby and they don't really care and i'm sure you two are fed up of answering questions about this but um you both have spent a lot of your careers making christmas themed romantic tv movies so where did anything for jackson first time it's come up actually (laughs) um where did anything for jackson come from and what made you want to dip your toes into horror uh we i we've always been pursuing horror uh just you know, independent film in general um, has sort of been a, a long-standing goal of mine. And on my path to independent film, I fell into commercial films. Um, I got offered a job on a monkey movie, and I said, "Sure, I'll, I'll direct a movie about a kid who plays soccer with a monkey." That movie went pretty well, and led to another project for kids. And then um, they just kept expanding, and we stayed in this world of, uh, yeah, churning out this. You know, it's it's tons of fun to make. We work with great crews, work with great actors, uh, but in the end, it is sort of a product you're delivering. Um, you're you know you're doing what the client has ordered, as opposed to uh, going out to make a, an independent film. So um, I kind of you know they're they're both filmmaking, but I kind of put them in, in two different lanes. So um, I've I've always been pursuing this myself, and uh, that other one is just uh, you know the world's greatest day job. I was curious if there was anything you've learned making so many festive movies that carried over into anything for Jackson, maybe in terms of setting up characters quickly and efficiently or maintaining a consistent tone or shooting in a snowy setting or knowing the importance of a moment of comedy, which I think is all great in anything for Jackson. It's all done excellently. Yeah, for, for me, from, from the directing standpoint, it's uh, I don't think there's ever a day I don't learn something on set. Um, you know, as you say, how, how to shoot in the snow, how to shoot when there isn't snow and you need to make it look like there is. Um, working with actors, the uh, you know, even though we're doing feel-good movies, um, a recent one I did, we had to do a, a stunt where, you know, the... Uh, the, the main act, the main character uh, gets thrown in an icy river and flows down river. So um, I now have experience doing that. You know, not a lot of independent horror directors can say I've, you know, I know how to cover someone floating down an icy river through some rapids. Um, so every day I learn something new on set and, and take it all with me. What I really like about anything for Jackson is that it riffs on ideas I've seen in older movies, yet it, it twists them just enough on their head so that it feels classic and but also fresh and the walshes i feel have shades of um the characters of the castavettes in rosemary's baby and that they're this cute older couple who happen to be satanists and 
But here they're the main characters, and you explore why they turn to the dark side, which is fascinating. <laughs> For you, Keith, um, I assume Rosemary's Baby was a big influence, but what other horrors were you taking inspiration from writing this? Yeah, yeah, you know, I don't know. I've heard, I've heard that one before, which is interesting. Um, it's certainly, I, I don't know if anything is, I mean, I think everything is influenced, right? I've watched horror since I was three years old, and I've loved every one of them, um, you know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think The Changeling was always one of my favorites. Uh, Carrie, and I think, you know, I think Carrie probably more than Rosemary's Baby in the sense that the thing I love the most about Carrie is the relationship between the mom and the, and the daughter, you know, between Carrie and her mother. And, you know, I mean, there were parts I genuinely felt bad for the mom. I was like, you know, I couldn't, I, I didn't go along with what she was doing, but I, I at least understood it. Um, so I'd say, you know, things like that, relationships are usually what I take away from every movie that I watch. For you, um, Justin, were you watching a lot of horror movies to prepare to direct this? Because there, there's a lot of interesting visual touches in this movie, because at times the camera is very still and it's like the viewer is complicit in what's happening. And then at other times there's this very graceful camera work to build tension and anticipation. And then you have all this truly frightening imagery when it comes to the demonic and spectral forces that haunt the Walshes. Uh, what movies were visual touchstones for you in terms of getting the aesthetics right for anything for Jackson? A lot of a lot of thrillers. I think we looked into. Uh, I st- you know, I, I I watched as much as I could once we you know once this film got greenlit. Uh, we didn't have a ton of time to prepare, um, but just from the conceptualizing of it, I was I was you know watching a ton of things, and um, you know I watched a film called Cardinals, uh, which is sort of a, a dramatic thriller, and that's where we found um, Sheila McCarthy. Um, was watching that movie, so a lot of. Um, Really, all genres, I guess, I was I was diving into, and I would specifically go after ghost films to check out, you know, especially like a James Wan film to see, you know, how he times his scares. But as soon as something started getting too close, and I started thinking like, oh, this is, you know, this is similar to one of our ghosts or one of our scares, uh, I purposely shied away from it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to just take. I wanted to, you know, find influences. Um, so I watched a, a ton of stuff from like, yeah, the seventies, uh, as Keith said that, you know, Changeling and, um, Shining, uh, those were all really good influences. And then a lot of new modern horror, but also, uh, dramas, comedies, um, science fiction. And, uh, and I think they all had, had a lot of influence on, on the visual style of this movie. And uh, last week, um, I was chatting to Larry uh, Fezenden, the direct, the great horror director uh, for The Pod, who also has a new movie on Shudder, and he was saying yeah. that he loved horror because not only do you get to explore weighty themes in a more fun, less portentous way, but you can also experiment with you know surrealistic imagery and build interesting soundscapes which flex your filmmaking muscles. And did you too enjoy playing in that sandbox for the first time? Because he, you know, you get into probe ideas about people doing bad things for ultimately a good cause and the messiness of that and then justin you're conjuring up the contortionist ghost or the woman literally flossing the teeth out of her head you know did you enjoy doing all that stuff for the first time for sure yeah i mean that's that's the kind of this is this is what we've been trying to do since the beginning you know it's just uh you know we haven't had the opportunity until now um you know luckily we we ended up in a in a pitch meeting with a company called vortex who we gave the quick pitch to and they said great like it was a five minute meeting and they said yeah awesome can you start in like four or five weeks we're like okay sure so that was it we had our money and we you know had our uh our green light so yeah it was great and it was just it's everything we wanted to do 
Yeah, and I'd, I'd say Keith has probably been in this space for a lot longer than I have because he's written a bunch of scripts on spec, um, conceptualized things. So I, I've had the uh, the pleasure of reading all these and sort of you know working my way up to actually getting out there and being able to do it on set with uh, with some actors. Um, so for me, it, it, you know, it was new, but also like I had worked as a cinematographer before and worked in the camera department and, and as an editor. So I've I've been in the genre before, but never as a director. Um, so it was, you know, as as great as those films always were when I was working on, you know, as part of the crew, uh, I'd always yeah, dreamed of, you know, oh, this is how I would do it differently. And so to finally be able to do that was, uh, yeah, was an absolute thrill. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I saw this fact on IMDb about the, the five-minute pitch. There's a, a few people who listen to the show who I imagine will be doing pitches, sure. projects, and stuff like that. What advice would you have in terms of like being able to pitch something that five minutes in the room, it's greenlit? <laughs> be at the right place at the right time, I think, is a big part <laughs> of it. They were Luckily, they were looking for something, and we had kind of what they were looking for. I would add on to that, too. Like, uh, yeah, I agree with Justin. Right place at right time certainly helps, but I also think you need to be ready all the time to be in the right place at the right time. You know, you need to have multiple pitches because there's the, even the one that we went into, this wasn't the movie that we were going to pitch. Uh, we actually thought we were going to make another movie with them. And it just happened that they already had something similar. So they didn't want to put two, two of the movies in the same space. So then they're like, oh, man, that's so great. They're like, but what else do you have? And you want to make sure you have something else. Hmm. So then we were able to sell them this and they're like, oh, great. Yeah, go do that. Here's some money. And they left us alone, and it was incredible. I know, Justin, you've been working on a few Christmas flicks since finishing anything for Jackson, but uh, given its great reception, will you be returning to horror uh, anytime soon? Because I'm sure me and a lot of the people on sure want more. Yeah, well, yeah, once once the film was shot, uh, we, we wrapped this film on March 13th of this year, so it was right as Canada's COVID restrictions got set in. And so we had to figure out how to do editing and po- full post-workflow virtually. So, you know, we're... We're, watch, we're on Zoom sessions with our editor. Um, he was streaming to Twitch while we watched his, uh, his screen and you know, tried to walk through the edit virtually. So, yeah, it was, it was a crazy year. But after, uh, you know, after we had it shot and, and no one had seen it, um, I still didn't have a lot of horror offers coming in. So went back and continued to, uh, to make a ton of Christmas movies. But, yeah, things, are, things have definitely changed now that Shudder has had it and, uh, and people are talking about it and giving it attention. So I'm hoping it won't be another seven years before we get another horror film off the ground. Those were my interviews. I hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as I enjoyed conducting them. Rate, review, subscribe to I Know That Face wherever you get your podcasts from. Follow I Know That Face on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also check out the Headstuff film section for more movie goodness. And just want to say Merry Christmas to all you I Know That Face fans out there. And see you later, cinephiles. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.